And I'm Stacy. And you are listening to the Best Together podcast. Brought to you by Blind Early Services Tennessee. And made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now I want to turn it over to our guest of honor tonight, Miss Annie Hughes. Annie um, is now a retired certified teacher of the visually impaired, but she has 44 years of experience as a special educator and teacher um, working with blind and low vision children. Um, she worked for the Indiana School for the Blind for many years and then ventured out to start her own program, um, which is called Visually Impaired Preschool Services or VIPS in the state of Indiana. So VIPS was already um, in operation in the state of Kentucky and Annie and another, um, a mother of a child who was blind or visually impaired, um, decided to start their own VIPs in Indiana and they were very, very successful. And that is why Stacy and I are modeling our program here in Tennessee after the VIPs program in, in Kentucky and Indiana, because it's been so great and helped so many families in those states. So, um, Annie's going to talk tonight just about some of her experience as a TVI. She's here to answer any questions. Like I said earlier, you can put those in the chat or you can ask them at the end of the session. I am gonna pop up a quick poll just so we can see um, who we have here tonight. If we've got parents, grandparents, caregivers or providers or others. So just answer that and um, we'll let Annie take it away. Hi everyone. First of all, um, 44 years is a long time, but I learned so much of what I know actually from the parents and the children that I served. Um, I'm a wife, I'm a mom of three grown daughters and a grandmother of seven grandchildren, ages four and a half, and trust me, he wants that half, through 23. And I live on a little skinny seven mile lake and I have a pontoon boat and my husband and I have been here about four and a half five years and it's usually pretty nice this time of year but it snowed three inches last night and it's been in the 20s and it's going to be in the low 20s again tonight so we're having an interesting spring here in Indiana um you, you already heard what Allison said. I, I wanna say how much I admire Allison and Stacy for what they're doing in Tennessee. Actually, when I was a much younger teacher, Tennessee had a wonderful program for their babies and toddlers. Um, um, Tennessee had a program and then they lost their program. And the difference is in Indiana, we never had um, any vision specific early intervention program until Rebecca Davis, that's the mom, and, and I working together um, started it here in Indiana on the shoulders of the, of the people, the wonderful people at VIPS down in Kentucky. Um, we started with eight families. And then by word of mouth and because the doctors at Riley Hospital for Children, the pediatric ophthalmologists knew me, we kept getting more and more referrals and we actually exploded. Um, 
Luckily for me, um, after Rebecca's husband got a new job in Florida and she moved a couple years into this, I found a new mom whose daughter Lola um, I had been serving. And Meredith is an amazing woman. And she is now the regional director and is in charge of the Indiana VIPS program. Um, I snagged her. She happened to say, you know, someday I would really be interested. And so um, I remembered that and I held her to it. And she came on part-time as our family services person and she's amazing. And now when I left, she became the director and, and things are just, she's just amazing and things are continuing to grow. We're about ready to open a new family support center in downtown Indianapolis this fall. That's going to be amazing. It'll be a lot like the building in Louisville down in Kentucky, um, the same kind of idea, but we wanna have a Mecca, a place where families can gather and everything there is made just for their children. It won't actually be a preschool, but we can do visits there and we'll have trainings there and lots of other things are go going to be going on there. Well, I've talked enough about that. So I probably ought to start talking as a TVI, um, which is teacher of visually impaired. In Indiana, we're called teachers of blind and low vision. They're both the same thing. Um, for most of my families, I found that when their baby was born, they absolutely love the baby they got, but they were grieving that normal baby experience when, the, when a baby is born and all the parts aren't working. It's a, it, it's a, a soul crushing thing for a, a, a mother and a father and for all that's my neighbor, if you hear that. Um, so I always say having a blind child is affects not just mom and dad, but it affects grandmas and granddads and aunts and uncles and the siblings and all the people that love the family are impacted. And the thing is, everybody has different ideas about what the parents should do with the child and what the child needs. And right when mom and dad are exhausted and tired, you know, um, they have a lot of different people giving them information and a lot of people with ideas about what they need to do. And that's wonderful. And it also makes it hard, especially if everybody isn't in agreement. Um, I usually, the first visit with my families, I would say to them, you know, every morning when you wake up, you're smiling and then you remember, my baby can't see, or my baby is blind, or my baby is blind and has other issues, has multiple issues. Because in truth, usually at least 60% and sometimes 60 or 70 or even 80% of babies that are visually impaired in today's world, sometimes they have other things that go along with that. So I always say when you wake up every morning, then you remember and you're sad. And many of the moms and the dads are, are 
genuinely going through a grieving process. But I promise them that a year from now, when they wake up, the first thing on their mind won't be, oh, my baby or oh, my child. It'll be, did I remember to move the wet sheets from the washer to the dryer? Because what ends up happening is there's a whole new normal that happens. And we're amazing creatures and we adjust and we are flexible. Usually we learn, we learn how to roll with the flow. And um, over a period of time, what used to be a very, very hard thing gets easier and easier and easier. There are still waves of grief that come, but they're spread out farther and farther. And also the waves are not as big. They don't knock you down quite as much. So, you know, I always tell my moms and dads, I promise, I promise, I promise it will get better. It just does. It gets better. Um, I think one of the things that's hardest is most times your child may be the first visually impaired person that you've ever known. And, you know, that's tough. That's hard. And um, there are so many kinds of vision loss. And most people don't know a lot about vision loss when this happens, unless it's a genetic thing that's been carried through their family. This is usually something they haven't heard of before. And a lot of times their primary care doctor, their you know, their pediatrician may not have even heard of what the diagnosis is. And one of the hardest things is when moms and dads for a while don't have a diagnosis and they don't have a reason that this has happened, that this, this challenge has happened to them and to their child and to their family. And it certainly wasn't what they were prepared for or expecting. So um, when you think about vision loss, there are hundreds of kinds. I mean, I have, was, I worked for 44 years in the field and all the time I kept learning about more eye conditions and more syndromes that had an eye condition as one of the characteristics and more genetic conditions. And as we get better and better with chromosome testing and we figure out more and more about some of the genetic conditions, things that used to be under a big umbrella and be called one thing end up getting split into lots of different, you know, separate names or the names morph over time and get changed as we learn more. Um, retrolentral fibroplasia used to be the name of an eye condition, which now is called retinopathy of prematurity. Things just keep evolving as we get more information. Um, there are so many causes of, of vision loss and blindness, genetic, environmental that we don't know about, environmental that we do know about, whether it's chemicals or whether it's drugs or whether it's alcohol. Um, there are also accidental things that happen. Not, I'm, and I'm not just talking about an accident that occurs to a child after they're born. I'm talking about 
chromosomal accidents, flukes as a baby is growing, things that just don't, sometimes things just don't unfold correctly in that neurological system or inside that tiny bud that becomes the eye. And so for many people, sometimes their day that's called diagnosis day, it can either be right away or they may have to search and search for a long time before they actually figure out or are given a name. And believe it or not, being, being given a name actually helps. When you have something to call it, you have a, a diagnosis, it actually helps because then you can find your people. You can find other people that are dealing with the same thing. Um, so that diagnosis day is very different for different families. And I just wanna put a plug in here for how important it is to have what's known as an eye report from a pediatric ophthalmologist. Um, this is the, the report that the doctor writes up after an eye exam on a, little, on a little one, whether it's at the hospital or whether it's in his office. This is the one that tries to make a guess or for sure labels the name of the child's eye condition. Hardly ever, unless the child is totally blind, are the doctors, can you pin a doctor down about what the baby can see? Because vision develops with use. And so lots of times doctors can't say what a baby's gonna be able to see or not see at that first appointment. And lots of times right in, along the acuity line, they'll write too young to test or unable to discern at this age. They have all kinds of verbiage that they put in there. But what they're saying is, we don't know yet. We don't know yet because every single eye condition, again, has parameters. And at one end, there may be just a little bit of vision loss. And at the other end, there may be total or a lot of vision loss and there can be anything in between. So for moms and dads, that is very frustrating. They wanna understand how their babies see or don't see, they wanna know. Um, when, when you think about this, the, the importance of an eye report, it's very important to document from the beginning what's going on, plus services that you receive. I don't know what it's like in Tennessee, um, but especially at school age, in order to receive services in preschool from your local education agency, your local school, you have to have an eye report before that teacher of blind and low vision will even look at your child, at least in Indiana, you have, to, you have to have an eye report. And the eye report has to be at least three years young. So I always tell my parents, even if the child's vision is never gonna change, get an eye report because you have to be able to hand that to people. And of course your early interventionists are gonna want that too. And what I used to do with my staff and with my moms and dads, I'd have them sign a release so that I could get a copy. And then 
I'd show them, I'd, I'd explain to them what all those hieroglyphics meant. And they're written in what I call eye doctor code. They have, you know, abbreviations for things and little places on the eye report that mean different things. And so it's a good idea to make sure that your teacher of blind and low vision gets a copy of that eye report and can look at it. And if she's had a lot of experience, she'll be able to look at it and tell you what, what it says at this point, what the doctors are stating at this point. And usually they'll make a guess or they'll state a diagnosis. There are frequently primary conditions there's a primary condition, and then frequently there are secondary eye conditions that go along with many diagnoses. And um, I always tell my families, you know, there are lots of levels of vision loss. And I, I know this sounds corny. These are highly technical terms, but NLP means no light perception. BLP means bare light perception. So if it's a really bright light, they can see that light. Light perception means they can see light, which is awesome because later on for orientation and mobility, you can tell where a window is or a doorway by the, wind, by the light coming in the window. You can tell where a staircase is by the way the lighting is. Even if it's only light, that's a really big deal. After that comes usually um, what they call HM, another highly technical term. It means hand movement. It means, can the baby see this? Can the child see this hand going back and forth pretty close to their face? Then the next step, step after that is called CF. Another technical term stands for counts fingers. That means if the baby could talk and later when they can talk, they have enough detail vision to tell the difference between this and this and this. And then the next step above counts fingers are acuities. And so far, all those things I named, that's all legal blindness. And legal blindness is anything that is a, an acuity of 20 over 200 or worse, or a field restriction that's like looking through a fat straw of 20 degrees or less. Either one of those or both together are legal blindness. So you can say, you can see there's this really broad spectrum. And we haven't even gotten to the kids who are reading small, um, are, are reading large print yet. Um, so there are all these different types of ability to discern detail. And each one, it's, it's your teacher of the blind's job to figure out what your child sees, where they can see it because different fields, maybe they see everything over here, but all the rest of this they don't see. So where the child sees things, under what conditions do they see best? Do they need really strong lighting? And most people think, oh yeah, 
every child with low vision needs really bright lights. No, for some children, kids that have a cataract or kids that have aniridia or kids that have, you know, are they're missing a bun if they have albinism, whether it's ocular albinism or oculotaneous albinism, um, those children, bright light is blinding to them. So each child's vision is used best under very specific circumstances, okay? So now I wanna mention eye doctors because I have a lot of eye doctor friends that are amazing, but eye doctors are people just like you and me. And they usually, there are two things you're looking for. The first thing is skill and knowledge and experience. And the second thing is bedside manner and kindness and the ability to communicate. And sometimes those don't always go together. Sometimes a great surgeon may do best when the patient is under anesthesia and can't talk and the doctor doesn't have to talk to him. So sometimes doctors that are amazing surgeons aren't necessarily the greatest in the bedside manner category. The nice thing is if you can find one that can combine both of those. But if your child has a detaching retina and there's one very special person and you go to him and he doesn't seem very nice, I say, well, he's not getting paid to be nice. He's getting paid to play God inside your child's eye. So you kind of have to learn to figure out what your child needs at the time and balance that out with eye doctors. If you're gonna be seeing a doctor again and again and again, and you don't like them, then talk to your teacher of blind and low vision or to someone at best and Legally, I never ever would say, oh, you need to go see so-and-so or so-and-so and give them the phone number. But what I would say was, you know, we have a number of parents that seem to really enjoy seeing. And then I'd always give them three, three names so that I'm not ever bad-mouthing a great surgeon who might not have the best bedside manner, but I'm also taking what other parents have told me and passing it on as far as how they felt after a visit. And those visits can be soul crushing. I'll never forget one of my families, we were talking about diagnosis day and I said to them, you know, what did, what did they, what did the doctor say to you? And the mom started crying and I said, what happened? And she goes, well, she came in and she said, your baby's blind. There's nothing we can do about it. Here's a box of Kleenex. You can stay in the room as long as you need to. And then she turned around and walked out. And I thought, oh my gosh. So I remembered that doctor's name and made sure that if anyone was talking about that, I would say, well, you know, 
a number of our parents seem to really like, and I would name those other doctors. So what I've talked about so far are some of the bones of diagnosis day and the grief you feel and eye doctors and all the kinds of eye conditions. But what I'd really like to talk about the most are some tips about little ones who are visually impaired. And the first thing I would say is your, your child already has a vision loss. They already have trouble taking in information about the world using their visual channel. Whether they can only take in a little bit of information or it's faulty or it's none at all, they already have that. So don't add to that by giving them a second handicap called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is something that teachers see, especially at schools for the blind, where little ones who are desperately loved are almost wrapped in gauze and protected and everything is done for them and to them to protect them and out of guilt and out of fear and all those other things. But it ends up that that child doesn't learn to do anything. So the first thing I would say is avoid learned helplessness. Make sure that there isn't a good fairy who's in your house. So if the baby goes, the bottle gets stuck in the baby's mouth. Or if the baby goes, eh, something is put in the baby's hand. What you want is for your baby to begin to understand how the world works. So, you know, if you are holding the baby and you're going to pass the baby to dad, you say, do you know what? Mommy needs to go in the kitchen and start dinner. I'm going to hand you to daddy. Daddy, are you ready? Here comes your big boy. And then pass the baby. So now that child is learning that mommy has work to do, that I was with mommy, but now I'm being passed to daddy. And remember, you're going to be heading into the kitchen and now there's going to be all kinds of noise. So maybe daddy walks in holding the baby and says, what are you doing, mom? Well, I'm filling this big pot with water because we're going to have spaghetti tonight. And then I'm going to turn on the water and the faucet goes on and the baby hears the water. And maybe daddy comes over and says, you want to feel the water? So what I'm saying is well, you don't have to do this every second the baby is alive. But whenever you can, use just your home and life to teach your children about what, how things work and what things are called and what sounds they make and how you use them. Um, I call this incidental learning. And this kind of learning, incidental learning, is what babies with vision loss or blindness are missing out on more than anything. And when I was working with my families, 
I told lots of stories. I was a storyteller to teach. And so I would tell my families a story and I named it the blue bowl story because I happened to have a blue bowl at my house that was on top of my refrigerator. So that's how it became called the blue bowl story. And I would say, imagine your child is one and in a high chair and we put another child, same age, identical high chair right next to them. And mom and dad are in the kitchen. And dad says, hey, babe, where'd you put the blue bowl? I want to make some popcorn for when we watch the movie. And mom says, it's on top of the refrigerator. So dad walks to the refrigerator. He reaches up on top. He grabs the blue bowl, he pulls it down, and he walks over and he makes the popcorn. Now, in that 15-second interchange between mom and dad, the baby with vision just got a bunch of lessons. First of all, it was blue bowl. So that's the color blue that's being reinforced. And that thing with a scoop out place in the middle is a bowl. And so maybe if I hear about another bowl and I notice it has a scooped out place too, I'm going to really start to understand bowls. And mom said on top and dad reached up on top. And also mom said on top of the refrigerator. Mom, mom said that and dad walked right to that big tall thing silver or black, whatever color it is at your house, and then reached on top. So think of that, the label refrigerator, the concept blue, the idea of what a bowl is, and the concept of on top. In that 15 seconds, that kid with vision just learned all that. And what did the kid who's blind or has no vision learn? Big Zippo. They heard the words, but the words were not tied to meaning. Kind of like on Charlie Brown, when the thing goes wah, 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 and it doesn't really have meaning. It's called empty language. And children with visual impairment hear a lot of words, but they're not always connected to meaning and to objects and to sounds and to things that are happening. So whenever you have the chance, like let's say the, the mailman's coming. Most children that are little ones have stood at the front door, looked out and seen the mail truck or the mail car. If it's a rural route driver, you know, every place is different. Most children have seen mailboxes that are at the end of the driveway or are up on the porch next to the door or are in a row in an apartment complex or those great big red and blue ones that moms and dads drive up to when bills are late and they drive up to them and put stuff in. A blind child hasn't seen all that. They need to be taught about how many kinds of mailboxes there are and what their mailbox is like. And they need to understand that there's somebody who drives by every day except Sunday 
and puts mail in everybody's mailbox. And so what a parent can do is start talking, is first take their child out and go get the mail. And you think about all the words, open the mailbox, bang on it, it's made of metal. Think of all the concepts, just check it, your kid out to get the mail. And then of course you hold onto the bills and have your child hold onto the junk mail and carry it in. And then after you've done that a few times, talk about how there's somebody that brings it, that puts it in there. And, you know, in my case, it's, it's a lady, it's a mail carrier, it's a woman. Maybe at your house, it's a man. Talk about who the person is. If they have a name and you know it, tell, tell your child the name. And then sometime, take a lawn chair, go sit out there and wait, figure out when the mail truck comes and go sit out there and wait and listen. Oh, it's at the Jones's house. Oh, he's, oh, he's putting mail into Jones's mailbox. Oh, now he's at the Anderson's house. He's coming toward our house. Do you hear it? And then get quiet and let them hear the sound of the vehicle moving close. And then say, see, I always say, your child is visually impaired. Use it. Use it. So you say to the mailman, this is my son, Zachary. He doesn't see very well, but he's learning about what you do. What's your name? So that the child gets to hear the mailman's voice. Have you been a mailman for very long? Say, are you the one who puts the mail in mommy's mailbox every day? So what I'm saying is, Take advantage of the stupid everyday things. Those are big things. The best teacher your child will ever have is you as a parent. And the best school your child will ever attend is your home. Because that's where they first learn about the world and that it's a wonderful place to live in and that everything has a name there are people and there are places and there are things and there are sounds and there are animals and there, you know, there, there are smells. They start to learn about all those things in your house. And it's all that incidental learning that a child with vision picks up incidentally. Nobody plans the lesson. Dad's sitting in the in his chair the keys slide off the arm and they fall down beside the chair. He's busy watching the football game. And mom says, the pizza's ready. Will you go pick it up? And he goes, dang, where are my keys? Mom says, honey, they fell beside the chair. Dad leans down beside the chair. What's the visually, the, the normal visually sighted child? No, they're starting to understand the concept beside. The visually impaired child doesn't know what that means. So think about those things that happen all day, every day, that can become amazing teaching opportunities. You don't have to do it all the time. You shouldn't do it all the time, but you need to remember to do it a lot more than you would with a normally sighted child because you want your child 
to not have a mind filled with words that they can repeat, but none of those words are linked to meaning. You want the words your child knows to be linked to real meaning. Otherwise, they're just going to repeat a lot of words and that's called empty language. I uh, told you all I was a teacher at the School for the Blind and I had this kid who would come in, this boy, this darling kid, and he would come in and we had this thing called Morning Corner. And on Monday morning, everybody told about something that had happened. And this kid every Monday talked about his dad's Hemi. And he could tell you the cubic inches and he could talk Hemi, Hemi, Hemi. He just rattled on about it. And I thought, oh, cool. I know a teaching assistant that drives a truck and I saw on the outside, it, it, it's a Hemi. I don't know what kind of engine that is, but I knew my friend Chad would. So I arranged at recess for Chad to bring his keys. And we opened up the hood of the truck and we were letting him feel the motor, the, which was the Hemi apparently. Chad could also prattle on about it. And the sad thing was the child had no idea that it was a motor of, a, of his dad's truck. He had no idea. And even think about the vehicle your child goes everywhere in. All they know is the seat. So sometime I always would put a piece of masking tape on the door and say, we're gonna go all the way around the car so you see how big it is. And we would, and we'd count the tires one time, go all the way around and then we'd stop. Then we'd go around again and we'd see if we could find different things like the headlights and we'd see if there were handles on both sides. Then. I put them in the front seat so they could see the steering wheel that I held on to. I talked about the pedals that I would push to make the car go and make the car stop. Because to a child, the only thing they know about the car is the seat that you put them in. The fact that the, they, they know the feeling of the braking that you do and the acceleration. But there are just basic things that they don't have a clue about. Even at the School for the Blind years ago, I wouldn't be able to get away with it now, but I, I used to purposefully take a state car that was almost on empty so that we could get gas because we had a little, a little um, plastic gas station thing in the gym that the kids would play with, with little cars and little, and little tricycles, but none of them really understood. And it wasn't until we really fueled a car and they saw the thing that they felt the hole and they knew where we were putting the gas in and they understood that then they were able to do some imaginative play. I'm not sure if I'm overdoing it, but I want you to understand incidental learning is just a huge deal. Even for kids that have lots of lots of vision to use if it's right here they still can't see all that stuff that's out there
the buildings and the farms and the fields and the cows. That's why, you know, anytime you get a chance to go a real place and let your child have an experience with one or two aspects of that place, you know, they don't have to touch every animal. They can maybe touch one animal, smell the smells, sit on a bale of hay, maybe meet somebody who's a farmer and all that's plenty. It, little doses are big and um, incidental learning is just huge. So remember that blue bowl story and remember that your goal is to try to make sense of the world, weave all those separate little threads together so they start to have an understanding first of where they live and what those rooms are. A sighted child knows bathroom things are in the bathroom, kitchen things are in the kitchen. In the bedroom, there are beds and dressers. A blind child doesn't know that. You have to talk about that. Talk about the things you find in a kitchen. And as the child is able to crawl around on his tummy or sit up, you're going to want to make sure there's a cabinet in there. That baby can pull out a, a metal bowl and a couple pans and some wooden spoons. And, you know, you want them to start to understand. And so when you pick them up, if they're stinky and you say, oh, my goodness, somebody has a dirty diaper. You made a present for mom, didn't you? We're going to need to change your diaper. So as you walk, say, we're going to go up the stairs, up, 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 and they feel that movement up. Let's go in your bedroom, you know, so push the door open. Let them, let them help you push the door open. Lay them down and then talk about what you're doing when you do it. Hand them a clean diaper to hold and say, you hold that one. I'm going to clean your bottom and put one of those on your bottom. And also it'll keep their hands busy, maybe. Um, so use every situation. I, I, I'll tell you one more story just to kind of emphasize thinking about your child. I, I got a phone call once from a mom and she said, oh, Annie, we made the coolest fort the coolest fort in our backyard. And we're, we just wondered, what angle should we build the ramp? Um, and I said, build the ramp? And she said, well, yeah. And I'm making up a name here. So that Daniel can, can get up in the fort. And I said, well, now let, let me first find out did Daniel have an accident? Did he hurt his legs? Is, is he hurt? And the mom goes, oh, oh, no, 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 no. And I said, okay, can, can I ask a couple other questions? Are you going to want Daniel to be able to play on the fort in the next door neighbor's yard or the one in the park or the one at school? And she said, well, yeah. And I said, well, then most of them probably have a ladder, right? 
maybe what we need to do is teach him to climb a ladder. And so I suggested that they get mom, that they get dad's ladder out and open it up and check it out and then start by just going up one step and maybe having something he likes. It happened to be Easter. So I said, you know, put a jelly bean on the next step up and say, oh, I think the bunny left a jelly bean up here. Let's see if you can get it and teach them how to put one foot up and then the other you know, what I wanted to say was just teach him how to climb a ladder. You know, you don't build a ramp. This child is not orthopedically impaired. Now, if the child is, that's a whole different story. But again, that, that learned helplessness rears its head. Perfect. That was so good. I have to say, I'm working every day at sitting on my hands to stop myself from helping my son too much. And he's seeing um, a TVI right now through the school system two days a week. And she sent me a video of him working, uh, or not working, but playing on the playground. And he's only been to the school a handful of times. And she took a video of him navigating his way around the swing set, up the ladder, down the slide. And I I just, my eyes were, you know, wide yes. open that he could do that. And I'm not letting him do that all the time at home because I'm thinking he, I'm doing that learned helplessness thing. So I'm going to try well, really but it's, hard stuff. it's done out of love. But it is, but it's so hard. It's so I hard. know. But and it's so I, important to have someone there who says, mom, just wait. He'll find, let him, let him find it. He's yeah. going to find, it. you know. Yeah, that same TBI slapped my hand the other day. <laughs> I was oh. trying to help him find a letter on the brailler. And she's like, mom, get out of there. So I really got to work on it. But I wanted to ask a question, not as a mom, but as a future TBI. I think I've told you that I'm in school right now. Um, and that's just, you know, kind of a broad question. But what's your biggest piece of advice to TBIs in terms of working with parents and how to be the most effective at, at kind of getting those concepts across and, and just helping them. Is it, you know, I really liked what you said about, you know, the grieving process, because that's so true. And I, I do want to be respectful of where families are in their process. Yeah, they're all for that, but each family, it takes them a different amount of time. And sometimes they make three steps forward and then take two back. I think for me, when I was a classroom teacher, I wasn't as aware as I should have been of what the family had already been through. Mm -hmm. I, sometimes I thought, why? Why didn't they have this kid do this and this? You know what I mean? I was frustrated, but they didn't have early intervention right. to their child's blindness. And how are they expected to know? It's hard enough to raise a, a kid that has all their parts working. It's hard to know what to do then. Now, add blindness or multiple impairments and blindness. Holy cannoli. Those families are not born always with the tools to know what to do. So I guess I would say, you know, each family is different. Each family has different resources. Each family has different circumstances. 
And most families are doing the best they can with what they know and what they have. And for some families, they're just trying to get food on the table. And so the idea of working on Braille or doing that, my gosh, they're just trying to get home and get their baby fed and get everybody in bed. You know what I mean? You have to, you have to back way up and think about the whole picture and understand that Yes, for a child, you might want the family to do this and this and this and this and this. But that's not realistic. I think back, I raised three little girls. And if I, if there had been a camera on me, oh, thank God there wasn't a camera on me. You know, you, the, you look back and you wish you would have done things differently. And for a family that is dealing with all that a family who has a blind or a multi-handicapped and blind child, that's, you, you have to be careful that you're not assuming inaccurate things about them. Um, and, and remember that every child is born with a, with a different set of resources and talents. And just because you have a son who can do things a certain way, doesn't mean that will work with every child. Now, if you find a child that has the same diagnosis and they have the same level of vision loss, it becomes helpful because you know what worked with your son. And then you can maybe use the same kind of verbiage or the same approach there are like with septo-optic dysplasia or optic nerve hypoplasia, what used to be called de Morsier syndrome. There are things that I learned to do that work with those children. And knowing, having worked with a with hundred other kids with that diagnosis, then when I would meet a new child with that diagnosis, I felt fairly secure that I was gonna have some decent strategies and understand where that child was coming from neurologically. Does, does that make sense? Yes, that was very, very helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. This was really informative. And if anyone um, wants to follow up, ask any questions, you can reach out to me. I'll put my email address in the chat um, and I can put you in touch with Annie if you have any questions about or for her. Um, but thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Do you know a family or provider in need of resources to support a child with low vision or blindness? Do you know someone with lived experience or professional expertise related to blindness who might be willing to share their story? If so, please reach out to us at blindearlyservices.org. Thank you for listening to the Best Together podcast and for supporting our mission. And please stay in touch. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Blind Early Services. Until next time.